It's week 30 of 2018, and on TechNATO, we're going to be talking with Joe Peacock, our resident ITIL expert, about some changes coming down the pipe for ITIL in the curriculum. We've also got a lot of bugs to talk about in the news. That's all coming up on TechNATO, starting right now. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Technado. I am your host, Peter Van Rysdam, and we've got Don back in the studio. So, uh, yeah, things we've got a big upgrade from Daniel. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you know, we like to set the bar as low as possible to make an easy reentry for our hosts. <laughs> yeah, Don says, "Well, I'm going to be gone. Let me let me put Daniel in there. That way, they'll definitely want me back." But uh, we've got a really fantastic episode today because uh, we'll actually have someone else in here in a minute. We do some interviews from time to time, a lot of times uh, remote, but we actually have someone here. Uh, in the office. It is an expert on ITIL. So we're going to bring Joe Peacock in in a minute. And uh, ITIL has been, it's something I really didn't know that much about until she came on board. And I've learned how, how big a role that plays it in the IT community. It has spread like wildfire across the U.S. I mean, you know, it originated over in Europe, uh, but it's getting really big here and essential, and they're doing some big changes. So to better understand those changes, Joe's going to be on the show with us. She's going to explain a lot of what's going on and, and give everybody a little background on the uh, what's happening in the ITIL world. Well, let's find out from Joe all about that and all the changes that are coming down the pipe just after this here in the Technado. All right, everybody, welcome back to the show. So we are accompanied here in office, in person, by Miss Joe Peacock, who's going to be helping kind of highlight for us a lot of things that are going on in the ITIL world. And uh, and first off, before I get started, Joe, thank you for joining us today. That's okay. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me, Don. And for I know for our viewers, for us, ITIL is becoming a bigger and bigger buzzword for us. You know, there's a lot going on in that industry most people, I think, started really hearing about it in the U.S., I don't know, five, six, well, probably eight years ago now. Uh, and it's just been growing in popularity ever since. But this year in particular, there is a lot going on in the ITIL industry world. But before we get into that, let's just kind of start out really simple. If there's any of our viewers who aren't familiar with it, can you can you maybe give us like a one-minute summary of what ITIL is? One minute, you've got no chance. Uh, one minute to win it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it might, it might be a little bit longer than that. But yeah, I mean, ITIL came about oh, well, many years ago in the 1980s. It was born out of a necessity, really, to be able to demonstrate the um, efficiencies. Well, uh, well, it's all about cost effectiveness, and it's all about the efficient use of taxpayer money, basically, is what it was born out of. It it came out of the UK government way back in, um, as I say, in the 1980s, when these things started appearing on desks. As I, I like to tell a little story with this one, and, and it was really just a case of there is a government department, and in fact there's one in every single government around the world, that oversees all of the other government departments to ensure that they are acting in an impartial way and that they are making best use of taxpayer money. And it happened that this government department saw all these things appearing on desks around government departments, um, and they just said, well, we don't know anything about them and we don't know how to manage them and we don't know how to ensure that we are managing them in an impartial way and that we are delivering um, value to the effect of, well, to cost-effective nature of, you know, it's taxpayers' money at the end of the day. It's your money and it's my money and we want to make sure that government is spending it wisely. And so this is how ITIL came about and what happened was they um, they got together a group of industry experts and they said, look, we want you to go out into the big wide world and see what these boxes are all about, see how they're managed and see what works in terms of managing IT and let's disregard what doesn't seem to work in terms of efficient management of IT and then let's document it. And what happened was these group of experts came back and they documented what seemed to be working in the big wide world. And they went to all sorts of industries. They went to IT industries, obviously, but they went to finance, they went to retail, they went to all sorts of different industries, manufacturing. And of course, you know, back in the 1980s, we were concentrating on mainframes a lot at the time. But, but nevertheless, they came back with a set of practices. Now, ITIL gets its name from the fact that they came back with a set of practices because they came back with 40-odd books worth a, of a practices. Library. <laughs> yeah, right, which is why it gets its name, the IT Infrastructure Library, because it really was a library. And then 
in the night. It and I'm going to be honest with you. At that point in time, it was pretty much. I'm not going to say it was completely ignored, but it certainly gathered a lot of dust. Let's put it that way. Until sort of the mid 1990s, when it was realised that actually all of these great ideas and these these sort of great ways of managing IT and demonstrating cost effectiveness and efficiency weren't really being undertaken by sort of, you know, government departments and agencies in a way that they should have been adopted. And so it was also noted that IT had moved a lot from the 80s to the 90s and that we needed to to do something about updating ITIL. And this is where ITIL version 2 came about. And they reduced those 40-odd books down to seven books for version 2 of ITIL. Now, the funny thing is, I mean, these were books that produced a best practice for managing IT services. ITIL version 2 was seen to be fairly prescriptive, certainly a lot more prescriptive than version 3 was perceived. But nevertheless, what was noted was the fact that if you implemented a best practice framework, you could actually become more efficient in managing IT. And of course, being more efficient meant being more efficient with money, with finances. And the other beauty about ITIL was the fact that it was available under freedom of information because, of course, it was produced by the government, which meant that it suddenly became very, very popular in the late 1990s. It became incredibly popular with the private sector. And so uptake, certainly within Europe anyway, within the private sector was huge. It was phenomenal. And so, as you said, in the US, it hasn't really taken off too much until sort of certainly about the past seven years now, um, we've seen uh, a big uptake in, in fact, that's the reason why I'm here, because sort of seven years ago, we really started to push here in, in the US, well, because, you know, government agencies in the US were, were looking to sort of implement best practice. Um, we had a lot of global organizations that had seen this working for them in Europe and had said, no, we really need to extend this sort of worldwide and globally across our organizations. And so this is where we are today. And now we are at the moment, we um, were in version three of ITIL was released in 2007. And now we, we updated ITIL in 2011. And so that's currently the version of ITIL that we are dealing with right now. Now, the transition between version two to version three, we reduced the number of books again down to five and we were working on the basis of the life cycle of a service. So understanding that a service starts off with a concept, with an idea, and then it's designed and developed and then built and tested and implemented, deployed, and then it's run. And, and a lot of people will sort of misconceive ITIL to be just about the business as usual. But actually, that's kind of just one-fifth of, of what we cover in the best practice framework. Now, that's not to say that we step on the toes of project management because actually we work really, really well with project management. But we also look at the beginning to the project as well, where we talk about governance and strategy, for instance, and looking at, you know, creating business needs and, and creating a, a value to the organization so long before that idea becomes a project, as it were. And, and along with this, so a lot of companies recognize the value. They started rolling it. I've, I've worked in companies that were built off of various ITIL you know, pieces of the framework or the entire framework uh, and, and use that as how we defined our, our management structure. But uh, a whole uh, round of, of certifications developed around this too, right? So if you were going to be an ITIL practitioner of some sort, you could, you could step into it at the – ITIL Foundations is the only one that I ever <laughs> did. So I, you know, like the first step on that journey – but you have all sorts of different process areas that you can get certified in. And then the overall, and I, I forget the name, is it ITIL Master? Or what, yes. What's the, the main one? Uh, so you can get certified in that. And we're hearing a lot about changes going on in the ITIL world right now. Is that changes to ITIL itself or changes to the certifications or changes to both? Well, let me just give you, I'm going to go back again and just give you a little bit of history because the, I, I mentioned that there was a, a, a sort of a, a I guess, a sea change between version 2 and version 3 of ITIL. And version 2 was deemed um, to be quite prescriptive. It wasn't actually that prescriptive. It wasn't supposed to be. But certainly the implementation that organizations had around version 2 was in a very prescriptive manner. Now, there were accreditations associated with version 2. And for that, you could attain what we call a service manager, an ITIL service manager. And the accreditation process for version 2 of ITIL 
felt was, um, let's just say it was something to attain. I mean, the, the version two service manager meant that you had to sit through not just your ITIL foundation, but you also had to sit through two three-hour exams and these were handwritten exams and you were basically given a blank piece of paper and you had in each of those three hours you had six questions that you had to answer with a blank piece of paper which was something along the lines of how would you implement service level management in this particular case study and so that was seen to be quite a prestigious um, accreditation to achieve and then when we moved into to version three we changed the format of the accreditation into multiple choice now the foundation that you've mentioned is multiple simple multiple choice and for the intermediates which were the more advanced levels going into the um, ITIL expert then you have complex multiple choice and the ITIL master is actually thesis based so it is white paper based and you have to submit a, a, a number of white papers and it really depends on what it is that you're selecting as to what weighting that carries and therefore that will drive how many of these particular white papers you have to produce and submit then you're subject to an interview and that's when you're granted your ITIL master so that will take a that's a two-year process to get to the ITIL master. So yes, you're right. There are rumors that ITIL is going to change. Um, there are rumors that the accreditations are going to change. Um, but let me start out by, by saying, first of all, and I want to dispel any rumors here. Um, as part of sort of the ITIL development forum, um, I can tell you now that um, we do have, um, we've got some, information that's available on the Axelos website and in fact it's actually on my screen right in front of you now it will tell you that um, and if I can just zoom in here just slightly it tells you here that Axelos is currently working on ITIL 4. Um, now one thing that I do want to mention about ITIL 4 is that in terms of naming convention, um, ITIL 4 has not yet been completely agreed on. And certainly the last time I was in our development arena that we have um, for, for, for those of us that are contributing, um, the certainly the name still, it hadn't been agreed upon as of, well, two weeks ago. Certainly the, there's been no notification of that. So it may be called ITIL 2018, it might be called ITIL version 4, I really, really couldn't tell you at this point in time. What I can tell you though, and it does actually tell us here, um, if we can get onto that website, it does actually say, and in fact right here where my cursor is here, researchers confirmed that ITIL remains best practice for the industry and therefore the core elements of ITIL will remain. Now what that means for the accreditation, um, I can't tell you just yet, but what I can tell you is, unlike the move from version 2 to version 3, where we added in some new processes and where we, um, you know, changed some of the existing processes, that will be probably about as much as we're going to do here for, for we'll call it version 4, but that will be about as much as we're going to do. The principles of ITIL, the best practice and the efficiencies and the effectiveness and the principles of sort of the, the differentiation between incident management and problem management, etc., they will remain. They are not going to change. At the moment, there's been no decision made as to the accreditations, and, and certainly there's been no announcement made right now. But um, I could tell you a little bit more about where ITIL is going, if that will help you. Yeah, I, I think it would, because I, I think it's pretty safe to assume that if a new version of ITIL is released, that the exams, at a minimum, will be refreshed, because uh, they need to change the three to a four everywhere that's mentioned <laughs> in the exams. So at least that's going to happen. I think we can all probably assume that. But in terms of the, the changes that are being recommended, if you could give us an idea of where that's going, and, and actually, you know, for the viewers, if you can remind them of where these changes come from, because it's not like it's this secret group of people making this up, right? They have a whole process that they go through to come up with what changes occur, don't they? Right, yes. And I mean, you know, you can see that on that website there, there was um, a, a link there that said, if you'd still like to be involved, you can join the ITIL development group here. And in fact, whilst there are some um, criteria for joining the development group, nevertheless, there's certainly been a, um, a 
a sort of a, a blanket um, invitation that's gone out to a lot of industry professionals that have said, look, you know, please come and help us. We need your contributions. And so the, you know, the theory is that rather than bring in just a dedicated number of experts, with every iteration of ITIL, the net has been cast wider and wider in terms of opinions that are being sought. So, and we do this deliberately because we want to ensure that we capture absolutely sort of you know everybody's opinion and that no stone is left unturned. We want ITIL to remain relevant, and that's the key point here: is is the relevance of ITIL. We don't want ITIL to to become outdated and to become another one of those. I, I you hear phrases like "oh, it's just flavor of the month," that sort of. And that's the one thing that we don't want. We want to make sure that ITIL still remains relevant. So you're going to start hearing words like DevOps. You're going to hear words like Agile. Now, I know that... Um, so for those of you that are aware, Prince2 is the, the kind of the sister framework in to ITIL in as much as it looks at project management and it also comes from the UK government. It was owned by the OGC and is now owned by Axelos and Prince2 has recently had an update in 2017 to um, accommodate um, the use of agile principles and certainly what we're going to be doing now is we're going to be doing exactly the same with ITIL. So we're going to expand on CSI, on continual service improvement and on the iterative nature of continual service improvement which lends itself to sort of agile methods of improvement. But we're also going to be looking more into the DevOps arena as well. And of course, DevOps, for those of you that don't know, is, well, it, it really is made up from development and operations. Um, in version two of ITIL, there was the concept of early life support. And early life support really was all about the fact that we didn't want the development team or the project team, if you want to call them that, to kind of just throw projects over the fence to operations because that was something that, that happened a lot in organizations. And I've got to admit, it still happens now. I know it does. But what we try to do with early life support is, is introduce a concept of a, of a handover, but not actually a formal handover with here's your piece of software and bye, we're leaving, right? That's not what we wanted to do. It was more about, right, here's your piece of software. You've been involved in designing the spec for this software. You have been involved in designing how you're going to support the software and how the users are going to use it. So now you feel comfortable with supporting it. But once it's gone live, I'm going to sit with you for a little while and make sure that, you know, we've got everything ironed out. And that was the idea of early life support. And what DevOps has done is, is DevOps has come along. It's, it's a mindset, really. And it's come along and said, no, we're going to formalize that a little bit more. And we're going to extend it. So we want operations involved right the way from the beginning. We want them involved in the design and in the development as much as they can be. And we want the project team and the development guys to be involved in the support as much as they can be, because it well, it helps everybody and it results in sort of more efficient service delivery because services are being designed so that they can be supported and because our developers understand how to support a product so they understand, hopefully, um, how to design it so that it can be supported. So it benefits absolutely everybody as well as enhancing collaboration and sort of teamwork within IT as well. So there's going to be more focus on DevOps. There's going to be more focus on Agile. There's going to be sort of more focus on the synergy between project management and sort of service operation, as it were. You know, I'm glad you mentioned handoff because I know that's an area that I've run into challenges in the past before where, um, as a project manager, I wanted to avoid scope creep. So we have a project, they start trying to add new requirements to it, and I say, no, let's hold that off. We can do that in a second revision or a separate project later on. We get to the handoff. We get sign off on the product because it meets the original specifications and we turn it over. But there was no framework to say, like, all the requirements you asked for later on that we said we roll into another project – how do we take those and roll them into another project and move that forward? We basically have to go back to the drawing board and submit that as an all-new project, which may or may not get approved. So it's good to see that uh, on the ITIL side that we'll start to see some some potential methodologies for handling that. Is that a 
Is that like a, a one-size-fits-all solution, or are they coming up with more than one pathway there? No, there's never going to be a one-size-fits-all solution, and that's the one thing that we'll tell you about any methodology and any framework is that it's not one-size-fits-all. It's all got. It's always got to be tailored. But but that said, I mean, you know, what you, what you've just highlighted to me there is is sort of change management, really. That's what it is. And, of course, you know, when we talk about Agile and, and you look at the way that Agile will develop products and... At the end of every iteration, at the end of every so, and for those of you that don't know, you know, an iteration is a it's a time block period when we perform development, and at the end of every time block period, we perform what we call a retrospective, and we actually look back at what we've done, and we re well, we we kind of reevaluate everything that's still outstanding. Now, one of the things that um, one of the concepts that I really am in. I'm very excited to see is in the latest update to both um, the PMP certification from PMI and in the latest update to PRINCE2 as well, and as well as that in, in Agile 2, is that we now started to embrace change control and we started to embrace change management. And project management for a long time as a whole ran away from change management because they, they there was a real feeling there, I guess, because um, I can only speculate, but there was a real feeling of additional bureaucracy. And I think that successful implementation of ITIL has shown that when it is successful, and, and it is a when, but when it's successful, then change management is not bureaucratic. And in fact, change, change management facilitates an output, and it also allows for increased collaboration and it allows for visibility of changes as well and allows us to see sort of you know the backlogs that we talk about in project management so now we're seeing something that has been a part of service management and ITIL for decades now we're now actually seeing that being embraced by project management so that really is you know it, it kind of makes me happy um, but it really is something positive that I think is coming out of the increased collaboration that we're getting between all of our methodologies and frameworks and you know you mentioned agile and, and change management which goes kind of hand in hand there seem to be two camps of people when it comes to the agile world there's one camp that says this is great it allows us to pivot and react quickly and and make good decisions to keep a project going you know, in, in the right direction as the world changes around us. Then there's another camp that says Agile is just an excuse to skip out on planning and not get blamed when things go out of scope, right? So um, what what approach is ITIL taking? Is it a positive approach? Let's integrate Agile, or is it a, a more, like, how do, how do we control it? What are we seeing there? Well, you know, what we really want to have, what we're really aiming for is sort of control with flexibility. And so we want to have control. In other words, we want to know what's going on, but we don't want to rein in any sort of um, innovativeness. We don't want to rein in any, um, oh, what's the word I'm looking for? I, I, you know, we want people to be flexible and we want people to be imaginative and we want people to, to kind of think outside the box. So... If you implement change management, for example, correctly, then that's exactly what you achieve. You achieve control, you achieve that visibility, and you have the ability to be able to say, actually, no, that's not great right now, but it still allows you to be flexible. Now, you're right about Agile. Um, there are a lot of people that are in the camp that says, no, I don't like this because it seems to allow people to just run around and do what they want because, of course, in Agile, we promote sort of minimal documentation. Now, that doesn't mean no documentation. And if Agile is implemented correctly, then there is documentation and there are procedures in place and there are processes in place. It's just that they're flexible processes. But then if ITIL is implemented correctly, that's exactly the same too. So so for those who do have a negative perspective on Agile, uh, what I firmly see is that, and it's not just sort of a belief, it's what I see, is their negative perspective is generally born out of the fact that Agile has been implemented kind of incorrectly and that, you know, an organization is trying to be too flexible. And that can happen. It, it really is generally a knee-jerk reaction from an, an organization that's been working in sort of a in a very very rigid maybe using PMP as a or P or the PM book as a as a standard for project management and they they've moving from a very rigid waterfall approach to projects and they've seen this thing called agile and they think that's absolutely fantastic and they kind of sort of 
sort of swing like a pendulum to completely the opposite. And and this is where you see that, you know, the enthusiasm for Agile wanes quite a bit because you've got people that have moved from a very rigid sort of, you know, framework to something that's so flexible that it kind of leaves them with a little bit too much um, flexibility, should we say. I worked with a CIO a while back who, who shared with us his guide to Agile, and he had thought this really well. Well, it was a PDF, and it had a great cover on it. It said, like, Agile Framework, and then you you flipped to page two, and it said, page intentionally left blank. And it was 100 pages that all <laughs> said page intentionally left blank, and it was it was funny because, you know, Agile, it, it allows you to kind of do what you want, yeah. but if managed properly, it can be very, very successful. Some teams have done great with it. Now, we've kind of been talking about change management for a little while. Are there any other significant changes on the horizon we need to be on the watch out for? Well, I tell you what I have seen is um, a move to accepting other methodologies. Uh, and I think that, you know, for for a long while, and this is not just ITIL, by the way, I think that there was uh, a a long time, certainly, you know, during the late 1990s, early 2000s, where each methodology and each framework tried to operate in isolation and tried to kind of remain, I, I don't know, should I use the word elitist? I think that's probably one that I might want to use, where, you know, everybody was saying, oh, look, you know, this framework is best and, and this methodology is best. And, and there's certainly a lot more collaboration that I see now. And there's a lot more acceptance uh, of other frameworks and of other methodologies. And there's a lot more consistency as well between not just the terminology, but the ways of working. So I see with um, ITIL right now, I see an acceptance of methodologies, frameworks like SIAM, for instance, and Verisma. And of course, SIAM, um, in our course library, we, we already have a foundation series in SIAM. And SIAM, the um, service integration and management, looks at the, you know, expanding sort of ITIL as a service provider framework, but actually accommodating multiple service providers. So rather than sort of trying to, I wouldn't say that ITIL concentrates just on one service provider. It does allow for the flexibility of, you know, other service providers and suppliers. But nevertheless, SIAM has really, you know, focused on service management from a multiple service provider approach. And so ITIL has basically, you know, as a framework has said, well, you know what? Yeah, we respect that. And so now there is a move to the two working together. And I see lots of white papers and lots of blogs that are actually on the Axelos website. So these are officially endorsed that are saying, hey, yeah, look, this is a, a great marriage. And then again, with Verisma or, or Verism, I know people call it different things. And in fact, I've heard People at Exin call it two different things. So um, I don't think there's a right way of saying this necessarily. Um, Claire, who collaborated on that, would probably disagree with me. <laughs> but, um, you know, this looks at taking the ITIL concepts and the concepts of sort of the incident management and problem management and then expanding that into the business. Because ultimately, I always say that, that ITIL is just common sense written down. And certainly that's what we could do. We could take that common sense and we can expand it. And yet again, you know, you see evidence sort of from Axelos that they're embracing these other frameworks and these alternate methodologies and, and looking to work together in a collaborative way. So I certainly see that in the future as well. Awesome. Well, it is a lot of change. It's great to see the framework adapting with all of our modern needs, all the things that are going on in the world out there. Uh, and I want to thank you for spending time with us to go over some of that. Before we wrap up, though, did you have any other points that you wanted to identify? Um, I tell you one thing that I do want to say is um, dates. Now, I get asked about dates a lot. And, um, and in fact, I had an email just this week saying, oh, well, I hear ITIL is, is coming out at the end of this year. Um, no, it, it was announced sort of at the end of last year. Um, and it, it does actually say, and I think have we got, um, I'm just looking on our website here to see whether it's got any date. No, that must be in the, um, in the development forum. But at the moment, the dates that we have is quarter one, 2019. That's, um, we don't have an exact date yet for it, but we've been told quarter one, 2019. It won't be in 2018. Uh, I'm hoping that we are going to be able to issue some form of guideline as to what's going to be in the new version of ITIL um, by the end of this year. We do have, and by the way, this is just speculation on my part, we do have a 
um, a fusion, an IT service management foundation conference at the end of September. And I'm pretty certain that, I mean, Axelos will be in attendance there, and I'm pretty certain that they will probably want to say something at that point in time as to, well, at least certainly give us some more clarification on dates and, and on availability and on what the new structure will look like. But um, right now we're set for launch in quarter one of 2019. So don't expect anything too much to be available before then. All right. So a lot of activity there. And, you know, as we find out more, we'll keep you posted. Joe is our, our resident ITIL expert, and we, we love having her on the show. So I'm sure we'll be able to rope you in. All right, I hope we'll be able to rope <laughs> you in again as, as more details come out. But stay tuned for that. Uh, and so you're thinking that September time frame for some kind of announcement, we'll start getting more details. Yeah, I mean, I'm not too sure about a formal announcement, but certainly by um, I'm hoping that I will have more information that I can release to you anyway. Sure. Um, certainly by the end of September, beginning of October. Um, certainly I'm going to be at the um, at the Fusion Conference, the ITSMF Conference. So I'm going to get to meet some of my colleagues in, in Axelos and we'll, we'll have a talk and, and see what we can tell you. Uh, watch this space because um, we'll keep you updated and with a quarter one rollout that means we've all got some new year's resolutions we can set for uh studying and getting certified into the new well, yeah we'll yeah i know i have yeah <laughs> <laughs> all right well joe thank you for being on the show with us and for the viewers out there thank you for watching stay tuned because we have more technado coming up after this fantastic interview there with joe and and uh really learned a lot about what's coming uh, in the future there for ITIL and some of those changes. We've got a ton of content already on the IT Pro TV library uh, for ITIL, and, and now we've got some new stuff that will be coming too, so that, that's pretty exciting to see, especially if that's uh, something that you're into. And, and really just with the whole Agile, Lean, and Scrum thing, they all kind of work together as well. So uh, are, are you an ITIL guy? Have you used that? In you know, I, I, I've worked in a number of ITIL environments, and I'm, I'm ITIL Foundations myself, uh, but that's it. I stopped at the very beginning. But if you're a practitioner, you have to go to a lot more training. And there's more and more companies that are, are building their infrastructure around that. Most of the Fortune 500 does it. It's becoming a, a requirement. So definitely an area people want to learn on. But um, uh, anyhow, plenty of opportunities to do that in the IT Pro TV library. For now, though, let's uh, let's move on over to it. our weekly news. We have uh, quite a few things were going on. We had a good interview today, so we picked a, just a kind of the cream of the crop of articles that were out there to talk about. Uh, just a lot of different stuff happening. Uh, where do we want to start today? Uh, well, we've got a first article here uh, over on the Guardian, and uh, this is an interesting one. I, I read this this morning, and uh, it's really interesting to see how this problem came up uh, in Japan. They've got uh, big tech warning of Japan's millennium bug ahead of Akahito's abdication. Uh, so basically, it's kind of a Y2K situation, which doesn't make sense when you first read it, because we're not changing the year, we're changing the, the leadership. But how does that affect computers? It's a strange thing. And, and I'll tell you, I, I don't, I, I pay attention to international news, but there's some things that come flitting by that I don't really worry so much about. So last year, I heard that Emperor Akihito is going to be uh, abdicating the throne, right? And that doesn't happen very often. The emperors normally serve their entire life, and then they, they die. And yeah, then 1989 is when, when he came in uh, into the throne. So right? he's been in for quite some time. Yeah. So, uh, so this is an unusual circumstance, something that doesn't normally happen. But it didn't really register on, on my radar too much. I mean, I, I read about it, but I, I don't live in Japan, so it's not such a big deal for me. But what I didn't realize was that in the, the traditional Japanese calendar, they actually use the name of the empire in the calendar year. And the name, it isn't the emperor's name, but it's the name of their, their dynasty, I guess. Mm -hmm. And so that name changes and the calendar starts over again. So their calendar resets every time they get a new emperor. Well, the last time this happened was over 30 years ago. And computers weren't nearly as prevalent as they are now. Systems like the internet were mostly US-centric and not international. I mean, they, they were international, but dates and things were maintained in the US format. Well, a lot has changed, and there are a lot of systems that are Japanese-focused or Japan-focused that are created in those nations, in that area uh, in Eastern Asia, that actually do either require or support the Japanese calendar, and that calendar is about to reset. And when that reset happens, it will be similar to our Y2K bug, that if software doesn't take that into account, 
it becomes a problem, right? And um, in the the article on The Guardian, they actually did a pretty good write-up on it, and they talked about how the the current era uh, – let's see, where is it? The current era's name uh, was something short. It's in the top. Uh, yeah. Oh, was it in the very top? I scroll right past it. Uh, so anyhow, when that era changes, so it's the uh, – let's see. The, the era that we were in is the – is it Heisei or Heisei era? Sure. Uh, and it's about to change into the <laughs> Shawa era. So that name is going to change. And not only does the name change, but it becomes basically like year one of that dynasty. And then year two, year three. And you know, they described it as like right now we're in Trump two. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> or, or whatever. Well, the, the, uh, so the, the current era is the Heisei era. I'm not sure how to pronounce that as well. But then the one before that was the Showa era. So oh, so what's our I'm, new era? I'm not sure what they're calling. Oh, oh. Norhito's coronation will mark a new era. Sorry, but... that was the problem. They don't announce the name. Oh, no. That's right. I, I forgot about that. So they, if, even if you know about this and you're like, oh, man, my software depends on this, you know it's going to reset to year one, but you don't know the name. They, they, they traditionally announce that as part of the coronation ceremonies, or it's not coronation, but whatever, when yeah. somebody ascends to emperor. Uh, so it, it's really interesting. And the reason I wanted to highlight it on the show today, I seriously doubt any software that most of us deal with is going to be affected, right? The, the main, the servers and mainframes, a lot of them use Unix time, which is based around this arbitrary date in the 1970s, the, the Unix epoch, and, and that's kind of emperor independent, right? So it would really have to be software that was developed for use in Japan to truly be affected. But it highlights something that I wanted to point out here, which is it's important that we as IT professionals don't ignore the international news, that things like this, this could actually be a problem, especially if you're in the medical industry. A lot of med tech that we use here in the U.S. actually comes from Japan and is developed over there. And it might be it might be manufactured or assembled here in the U.S., but it, it's developed over there. And that might be affected. And so we need to at least do a little bit of research to see if that happens. I think over in Japan there will be issues. They, they you know they'll, they'll uh, as a nation have to sort that out. Outside of Japan, I think it'll be really incidental. But it is kind of a lesson that just because something happens outside of your country doesn't mean it can't have effects inside of your country, especially if you're using software or hardware developed in a foreign nation. Yeah, and I was going to say the the silver lining here is that he gave a year and a half of, of warning uh, that he announced uh, back in December 2017 that he would be abdicating on uh, the 30th of April 2019. So, oh, they've got plenty of time to fix these issues, but... The point you bring up about not knowing the name, I think this kind of gives the tech community a time to reset and say, all right, now we know this is going to be a problem, and it's going to be a problem again in 30, 40, 50 years, however long this next empire lasts. So uh, let's come up with a naming structure that is is something that works better in, in tech and uh, and that they'll be able to to work around. And so this isn't an issue again next time it comes up. And, the, and there was another challenge of not only not knowing the name, uh, I think it was the UTC came out and they said that for the UTF character set, they need to create a, or, or a Japanese character mm. will be created to represent the name of this dynasty. And they don't know that yet. And so they can't release the character set to support it. So there's a number of things all built around this. It'll be interesting to see it all play out. Um, most of this is going to be occurring in 2019. So we'll see a bit of that shaping up right here. Uh, but it all kind of starts in December of 2018. January of 2019 is when the actual throne will change hands. It'll just be something you want to keep your eyes out for. You've got six months now, uh, so if you think your systems might be affected, definitely start looking into that. Uh, it will not be nearly as widespread as the Y2K problem, uh, which, if you were around for that, really wasn't that big of a deal either. So don't don't panic on this, but it is something to be aware of. Yeah, I was I was under my bed um, that <laughs> night. With a shotgun and I a mean, bag of rice? I'm assuming that, that <laughs> you probably would have just been getting your start in the tech field then? Were you? Uh, I was, yeah. So were you I, having to work that yep, night? I, or? I, uh, I actually worked a number of Y2K contracts. Yeah. We actually we, we made a ton of money off yeah. of Y2K. I felt guilty about it. Uh, we'd tell people it wasn't all that important, but I was, I was going out and we did these annoying audits. Well, maybe it wasn't would, a big deal because of the work that you did. Maybe I saved the nation. Maybe you did. I bet that's the case. But uh, but I remember <laughs> the actual you know New Year's Day just laughing about it because yeah. of time zones and stuff. You knew that other people would be hit before us, so <laughs> we were totally yeah. safe. Oh, you, yeah, you were out in Seattle then. <laughs> but, uh, no, I was here, yeah, I was here, here? In, okay. uh, in Florida. Gotcha. All right. 
Uh, well, let's skip ahead to our next article here, speaking of, of bugs and uh, potential problems. Uh, over on The Verge, on TheVerge.com, Apple confirms MacBook Pro thermal throttling and a software fix is coming today, which is written on uh, July 24th. So that software fix is likely out for you now. But, um, yeah, this, this doesn't feel that hot. So yeah. what does this mean, thermal well, throttling? Uh, unfortunately, it means absolutely nothing for you. So your, your laptop is unaffected. A uh, couple of months ago, Apple did a, a nice little surprise for us and announced all new MacBooks, right? New MacBook Pros with eighth generation Intel processors in them. So obviously screaming super mega ultra fast. Problem is MacBooks don't react to heat so well. And so if you started cranking up high CPU processes, like um, I think The Verge calls out playing Fortnite, but <laughs> really anything, uh, you're running virtual machines, you're going to crank up your CPU, system would get hot and the processor would slow down. So you'd have this nice, shiny 8th-gen Intel CPU that's running at speeds you could achieve with a 6th-gen CPU. Uh, so you're paying extra money for a CPU that doesn't work so well. Well, uh, a researcher found that after testing it, it was being throttled a lot. And it was actually pretty rare that he would get the performance out of the processor he was supposed to get. Apple identified a bug that was causing that, uh, you know, that was causing extra CPU usage when there shouldn't be. And they fixed it. They pushed the software update out. And as a dedicated IT journalist, I felt that I, I should go and buy one of these new 8th gen laptops so I can test this out for our viewers and make sure uh, that, that this bug was fixed. But damn, those are expensive. So, so I, didn't, I didn't get to test it, but reports are from the internet that, uh, that yes, that it does solve the problem and that you'll now start to get performance. But solves the problem versus gives performance are really two different things here, right? So the rogue process that was causing extra CPU utilization, that is fixed. And so now you're not going to throttle as soon. But the throttling is still there, all right? Be aware of that, that if you buy a laptop you're not going to get the same performance out of it that you would a desktop. When you get a desktop, there is a massive heatsink and fan stuck on that CPU, and you can run at higher utilization for longer periods of time. Laptops can do it in short sprints. But once you start going too long, the fans in your laptop, the heat sinks in your laptop, they're too small. They just can't dissipate heat fast enough, and so it has to slow the CPU down to stop it from burning up. That's going to happen. And that's why a lot of us laugh a little bit when you hear about a MacBook Pro, because there's not much pro about it anymore, that it really is just a regular old MacBook, that if you're a professional 3D graphics designer or a photo editor, video editor especially, you really shouldn't be doing that on a laptop, um, even with the external GPUs, which really don't help with things like video editing that you need to have a desktop that can handle running at the higher utilization for longer. But they did fix the bug, that, that's good, but it did, I think, open people's eyes up a lot that when you get a processor and they tell you it's a four gigahertz processor or 4.2 gigahertz, it might actually only run at like 2.4 gigahertz most of the time, 2.6 gigahertz, because it has to because of temperature. So that's why you should only mine cryptocurrency on a, on a desktop. Absolutely. Well, okay. you know, and, and the thousands of rogue frame. machines that you take over. Sure. That's, that's the way to do but it. But I, I run them so, from... Your, uh, your laptop, I, I don't know when you got yours, Peter, but yours probably has a 7th generation About Intel. A year ago, I think. Yeah. Um, mine has a 7th generation Intel, so we're, we're not affected. Ours run at the, the oldest speeds. About this Mac, what do you want to know? Yeah, and 3.5 gigahertz Intel Core i7. Uh, so it doesn't say the generation, though, does it? So... Yeah. Anyhow, it's a millennial. So it is important to understand. Uh, you know, different processors have different generations, different performance specs, uh, and this was this was really a software bug that Apple had to fix. It was just causing CPU to run higher than it should. Sounds good. Well, not good, but <laughs> sounds I understand. awesome. Buy a new laptop. <laughs> I understand. <laughs> All right, uh, sticking with our, our theme today of, of bugs and things just going horribly wrong. Uh, over on ZDNet, the next article in encryption push, Chrome flags HTTP sites as not secure. All right, so what does that mean? Because HTTP sites aren't secure, right? Right, so so this this is not a bug, right? I mean, it sounds like a bug, I guess, if you read the headline, but this is actually a feature. So Google has been talking about this for months, that it, there is a an expectation now that when you go to a website, your data should be secure. In the past, what a lot of websites would do, and, and we, we used to do this on our site, um, is if you were just going to the homepage, there's no sensitive data on the homepage. Who cares what you see? So you push it with HTTP unencrypted traffic, right? If you went to CNN's homepage, Fox News' homepage, it would be unencrypted. And they did that because why bother encrypting it? It's not sensitive data, and it takes CPU cycles to encrypt it, which burns up resources to push it along. So that's, uh, you know, it's a waste. But there's an attack vector there. 
Somebody could do a man-in-the-middle attack. If it's unencrypted traffic, they could modify the contents of that HTTP packet and send it along. You receive it, and you're seeing a modified page without even knowing it, right? So there's been a big push over the last couple of years to do HTTPS, or a lot of people call it SSL everywhere, right? And SSL everywhere means every web page should be encrypted, even if it's not sensitive, just to stop somebody from tampering with it in transit. Well, most websites have reacted to that. I know, I think it was like the first two years that Ice Pro TV, our homepage was unencrypted, but enough people said, you know, it should really be secure that we went ahead and flipped it. And so now the, the whole site is secure. CNN, Fox News, they've done the same thing. The, the various news websites, Google themselves, they switched to all SSL a while back. And so now if you go to a website, like if I were to, here, let me just fire up. I'm going to type in CNN.com. And even, even if I type in HTTP colon slash slash, that when I go to it, it's going to flip me and send me to the secure version of their page, even though I didn't ask for it, right? And they're doing that because there's this expectation of secure. Well, what Google did is they said, you know what? If every site is secure, why do we bother showing a little lock up top and letting people know if every site's secure, then that's the normal. What we should start doing is flagging when sites aren't secure, and that's what went live this week, starting with the newest uh, stable build of Chrome. This has actually been in the Canary and Dev channel for a little while. But in the newest stable build of Google Chrome, if you go to a secure website, it doesn't really get called out beyond that green lock. But if you go to a non-secure website, you'll actually get a warning. It'll pop a warning up letting you know that the site you're visiting is not secure. And Google is starting to let that affect page ranking inside of, of Google search results. So most companies want good SEO, they're switching on security now. So you might start seeing warnings pop up anytime you go to a site that's not secure, and that's that little, uh, uh, just that little awareness that Google wants you to have. Uh, Firefox hasn't done this, Internet Explorer, Microsoft Edge, they haven't made this change yet, but they probably will. Uh, Google's just being a little more forward on it. So as you're browsing the web, you might start seeing these messages pop up, and there's that warning. And actually, they, uh, on ZDNet, they show a picture of going to Fox News. When they made this screenshot, Fox News wasn't defaulting to secure yet, so you get that not secure message. But because it affects page ranking, you can bet they fixed that. So if I go to, <laughs> to foxnews.com with HTTP, uh, oh, no, actually, oh, it didn't well, flip me, did it? it? It doesn't say the not secure thing next to it, but then if you, okay. Yeah, I, I might not have updated to the very latest build, but I am gotcha. getting that warning right here. Your connection to the site is not secure. Oh. Uh, so I'm getting that little informational bubble there. And uh, uh, and so it's it's basically, boy, the crazy what headlines. I can not look yeah. at these things. So uh, <laughs> No, I'm paying attention, I promise. So, so anyhow, so that's what's going on. It's not a bug. It's not an error. It's all about security awareness. Be aware that if you're going to sites that aren't encrypted, you'll get a warning. And it's because it means that your connection is susceptible to a man-in-the-middle attack. Somebody could modify the contents of the page. You would have no knowledge of it. It would be invisible to you. This can cause problems with things like uh, open Wi-Fi networks where they have that captured portal authentication page. So you may see messages there. Those have had problems with secure pages for a while anyway. So that should all just be par for the course. This isn't life-changing, but just be aware that change was pushed out in production this week. Yeah, so definitely take a look at your website if you're not doing that yet and, and update that. At least it's not the big red flashing thing, though, that says uh, this site is is uh, is malicious or phishing or anything like that. It's just a little gray um, indication there. So we'll uh, we'll see as people update that. Because like you said, if it, if it affects page rank, you want, you want to go ahead and do Absolutely. that now, even if it's uh, not a security issue for you. Uh, all right, uh, let's switch gears over now to CNET.com. We've got an article about uh, Google made the Titan key to toughen up your online security. So is this kind of like the, the YubiKey you've used before? Same kind of idea? It is. And, and you know, there was an earlier article that came out. It was on the uh, Sophos Naked Security blog where um, in an interview, which actually, I, I think this, this actually originated with a, a Brian Krebs uh, from Krebs on Security interview he did with Google, where Google announced that they haven't suffered an employee phishing compromise in over a year. That's pretty impressive. Phishing attempts happen all the time. They can affect any employee, no matter what level you are in the company. External people try to get your credentials. Those are really, really common. So Google says they've had phishing attempts like crazy but they haven't had a compromise in over a year. And what they attributed it to was multi-factor authentication. They require all of their employees to have username, password, and a second form of authentication, and they've been using keys. 
Now, they actually used YubiKeys, and Google recommended YubiKeys. They said, hey, you should use a YubiKey. If you're not familiar, hang on, I've got one right here on me. This is my YubiKey. So if, if somebody out there were to get my Google password, so if you have my password and try to log in as me, it's then going to prompt you and say, plug in your key. And if you don't have the key, you can't log in. So phishing attempts don't work. They can't just call and trick me into giving them my password. That's not enough. You have to have the key also. So that's that's one bit of news. Now, we've already known those keys were effective. We've talked about them here on the show. YubiKey makes a great product. But the neat news was the news that Peter mentioned, uh, which comes from CNET, that Google is actually so happy with this technology that they're releasing their own key. And they're releasing two different versions of it. It's called the Titan key, and it's going to be available for sale soon. Uh, I think they said within two months you'll be able to buy this key. And it comes in a traditional form factor, like the one that I held up that's USB. It's actually shaped. Do they have a picture of it? It kind of they looks do. like yeah. a key. Yeah, okay. there is. Um, this is the one where you can't really see it in this picture, but it's USB on this end. And you plug it into a USB port just like the Yubi key. The other one, though, is a lot more interesting because it's Bluetooth. All right. One challenge that I have with the YubiKey is that it's got a USB port on it, or USB connector, which is the older style USB port. I can't use it with an iPhone. I can't use it with this with MacBook that, Mac, that doesn't yeah. have a normal USB port. I have to have a dongle to be able to <laughs> plug that in, which is annoying. They released an NFC version, but Apple didn't support NFC on the iPhone for anything other than Apple Pay up until a few months ago. Still don't support the YubiKey. Well, actually, I think they do support the YubiKey now. But my MacBook doesn't have NFC. So I can't use that on the laptop. By choosing Bluetooth, Google's really doing something here because everything supports Bluetooth these days. You should be able to use that key with darn near anything. And I don't have to pull something off my belt and plug it in. It's Bluetooth, so it just picks it. When I'm 30 feet away from that computer, it should pick it up, and it's there, and it's communicating. Now, there was an interesting quote in this article, if you get a chance to read it, from the, the CEO of Yubico. Uh, who we had the, the chance to interview yeah, at, to RSA at, at RSA, or one of the conferences, uh, who, who's a, you know, she, she is brilliant, and the people she surrounded herself with are, are brilient uh, for coming up with YubiKey. I've been really happy with it. She said that they looked into doing a Bluetooth key, but they couldn't get the security up to their standards. They, had, they ran into too many problems, too many ways of compromising the Bluetooth key. So I'm curious to see, and we, we won't know until these are, are released, if Google managed to overcome those security flaws, or if they've just evaluated those flaws and deemed that they were acceptable. Maybe they are. I don't know. Um, I am I'm willing, I guess I'm more willing to trust Yubico on this because they've made this product for so long and they've done a ton of research. And I've actually met members of their team, and so I, I know uh, how brilliant they are, versus Google, where I couldn't name a single person on their security team. And they they I've had bad experiences with Google hardware in almost 100% of the cases I've tried it. <laughs> and so, so, um, so I don't know. I, I'm kind of on the fence on this one. Well, now I can go all Mission Impossible, too, because I know all I have to do is get you within 29 feet of your computer yeah. and know your password. So I can you know, hover down from the ceiling. I don't know if you have pressure-sensitive floors, but I'll just assume you do so I get to use one of those. Absolutely. And uh, you know, type away there, and as long as I know your password, uh, I'm good. Which, yeah, and uh, yeah, I mean, there are arguments here about how, um, unlike a fingerprint or Apple's uh, face face ID or, or whatever, here somebody could steal this key. They they could steal the other keys also. Um, you could, I guess, you could also just stab somebody and drag their body over. Sure. Uh, all right, there's a number of flaws that we might have to identify in this one. <laughs> the old stabbing. Yeah, log. but this way I don't, <laughs> I don't go down for murder too. It's just breaking and entering and a whole series of computer-related crimes. So, yeah, and, so that's uh, good to know. Yeah, and unauthorized uh, trapeze act. I think that's that's <laughs> exactly. the biggest crime. Is that a, yeah? Is that a, <laughs> it should be a crime. Uh, all right, let's uh, let's get to our last story of the day, which is is a serious story, but it's also kind of the, the crazy story of the week because it's just. It, it, it feels like we've seen this headline before. Uh, but over on Tom'sHardware.com, backdoors keep appearing in Cisco routers. And this is, what you say, the fifth time? Yeah. You know, let me, let me just say this at the start. I, I've gone to the Tom's Hardware website uh, almost daily for 20 years now. I mean, I've gone to the site for a long, long time. When, when I was a, a college kid building my own computer, I used the Tom's Hardware site. And, and so when it comes to hardware news, I, I, I like Tom's Hardware. 
their security reporting, especially this last year, I don't know if they maybe hired um, uh, Lucian here or whatever, but uh, their security reporting is is just awesome. They, they do such a good job. And here what they're, they're commenting on is a backdoor was found in some Cisco uh, software. And sadly, this is like the fifth time in, in recent years that somebody has found a hard-coded set of credentials in Cisco software or hardware. Um, and they tie this all back to 2004. So 2004, 14 years ago, Cisco put out an IETF proposal saying, we need lawful intercept, which is just fancy jargon for a hard-coded username and password in our stuff so that law enforcement can easily log in when a subpoena is issued. Like that's, uh, or a, um, not a subpoena. What's it called when you um, break into somebody's home and rifle through all their stuff? A warrant. Search warrant. A search yeah. warrant. There we go. So <laughs> I was going back to the illegal way. I was going to do it oh, with yeah. your Bluetooth. Then it's called Mission Impossible. Yeah. Uh, and it's Tom awesome. Cruise it's says it's awesome. okay. Yeah. Um, so anyhow, so that was the point. Like they wanted to support law enforcement. But the reality is whenever they create these back doors, if a malicious actor figures out what the username and password is, they can now abuse it. They can abuse the hell out of it. And we'll never know because they're logging with these secret credentials we didn't know about in the first place. So Cisco said, all right, we're, we're not going to do that anymore. We, we won't, won't put any more in. But the problem here is that Cisco keeps acquiring companies, and those companies have backdoors, and Cisco doesn't remove them. Or Cisco contracts out software development, and the contractors put in backdoors, and Cisco doesn't seem to know about them until researchers find them, and then we, we end up where we are. So, uh, so there was one in 2013, one in 2014, one in 2015, one in 2017. So 2016 was a good year for that. Yeah, it was a great year. Uh, but uh, 2018, we now have another one. Uh, just, you know, backdoor after backdoor after backdoor. And it is different products. not like the same product every time. Uh, one was their routers for small business. Uh, they had one in um, one of their identity servers. There was uh, The latest one is in their WAS, their, uh, their WAN. Uh, it's an optimization hardware package they have. Uh, so just a, a number of their different products seem to have this. And it's set up this, this pattern of if you buy Cisco, it's good hardware, right? You know, they make really stable, solid, well-built hardware. But their software has always been, uh, I'm going to say challenging is the word that I'm going to pick. Uh, it's always been challenging to support and maintain. And now it's like we just have to count on it having backdoors in it. And if you're security focused, that's a big challenge. And it means that you need to absolutely have firewall rules controlling access to any of your Cisco hardware and software. But you likely want to have outbound firewall rules in place as well to ensure that it's not phoning home and creating tunnels that allow these backdoors to be able to be used. Even if they are to Cisco or to the U.S. government, that if you don't want that, you need to be able to control that on the network. Unfortunately, if you're using a Cisco firewall, then uh, probably won't matter. Yeah, yeah, so, yeah. so there is that. <laughs> well, so, so what happens here? Because you know, it's it's not a bug per se, because the backdoor was put in there intentionally sure. for a reason. So, when when the backdoor is made public, what did they come in with a with a software update or a firmware update and close that? But then they put in a, another backdoor because they still want to have one? Yeah. So, I mean, it, it can be a few different things. They, they normally do patch it in a software update, right? There's times where it can't be done, like Intel with their management engine, where they ran into a problem and they just can't push an update out to everybody. They're leaving it up to the manufacturers and it's not getting patched and we end up with the mess we're in right now. Uh, with Cisco, though, they can. They can push out an update. They can remove the backdoor. Um What's supposed to happen, there's some companies like Barracuda. Barracuda does a great job with this, Barracuda Networks, that if you have a Barracuda spam firewall or, or you know, their, their mail filter, that it supports allowing their tech support team to remote in and connect to it. All right? But it's not on all the time. If you're on the phone with their support, they tell you, okay, we need you to log into it and click the support button. And you click the support button and that device phones home to them right at that moment and allows them to establish a reverse shell to it <clears throat> so they can connect, manage, configure, and, and, and solve your problem. And then when it's done, you click the stop button and it turns it off, right? You control that back door. You know it's there. You open it. You close it, right? But what's happening with some of the Cisco equipment is you don't know it's there. It's on all the time, and it's a hard-coded password. It's not even like a one-time password. It's just generated one time, they use it, and then it doesn't work again. These are like hard-coded passwords. So as an end user, as a, a sysadmin or whatever, there's, there's really no way that you can properly secure or maintain this. It needs to be removed. 
And a company that makes security products like Cisco should know better and, and shouldn't be doing that. And I, I would like to give them the benefit of the doubt and say, well, they didn't know. A lot of these are products they acquired, and, and they, maybe they didn't know it was there. But honestly, at this point, it's happened so much. They should be auditing their code base and looking for anywhere there's hard-coded credentials. It's not that hard to find. It, it would just take a, uh, you know, a couple of scripts to run over whatever source code repository they use and, and hunt this stuff down. But they just haven't done it. And even if they did, updating all of the equipment that's out there. I mean, Cisco is massively successful. Their equipment's all over the place. It, it's hard to update. Just just control F, and search yeah. password. Right? Is that <laughs> that's you don't have to do a grep, right? Yeah. You just control F. Uh, Seems easy enough, but if it's just uh, one file. Apparently not. <laughs> well, we want to thank all of you for joining us on the Technado today. Also, uh, thank you to Joe for joining us as well and, and for that interview. I uh, did want to let you know about something coming up. We have another webinar coming your way uh, that is on Thursday, August 23rd. And this one is about something we've talked about here uh, before on the podcast, uh, surviving a DDoS attack, and it's our story. So uh, we did an episode where we talked about how we uh, faced an a, a DDoS attack at IT Pro TV. What uh, what steps we took, how we identified it, uh, and it was pretty interesting and well received. So we wanted to go ahead and put that in a webinar as well to kind of give a little step by step and, and show what we did and, and some other things you might want to do if, if something does come up for you. So that, like I said, is on Thursday, August twenty third at two o'clock uh, Eastern time. Uh, it's going to be with Wes and uh, and Don. So definitely check that out. Uh, you can do so by going to go.itpro.tv/slash DDoS attack and register for it that way. Uh, really appreciate having you all there. And if you want to learn more about IT Pro TV, definitely uh, jump over to the website, itpro.tv, and use the uh, coupon code PODCAST30 to get 30% off your subscription. That's for the lifetime of your subscription. So as it renews, you're still getting that great deal, um, even even years down the road uh, when you're uh, an IT leader at that point, based on well, all the IT education that you have. Uh, Absolutely. At this point. So, uh, Don, anything you wanted to add before we close? Yeah, that's it. Stay safe. Check all your equipment. Make sure you're doing updates. I can never remind you enough to do that. And I uh, look forward to reaching back out about the tech news next week. Sounds good. Enjoy the rest of your summer, and we'll see you next week.